0: Okay, Warriors, you are listening to Unqualified Therapists. Remember, stay wild and weird.
1: Hey, Warriors, this is Amy. And I'm Sarah.
0: This is Conrad Henry Roy III, reporting to you about what's going on through my mind, what's going on through my head the last few days. What I am doing is, I'm looking at myself so negatively, I'm looking at myself, minuscule, little particle, the face of this earth. That's no good, trash, will never be successful. Never have a wife. Never have kids. Never. Never learn. But I have a lot to offer someone. I'm introverted. Nice and caring. That's some benefits. I'm a nice kid. But it's just, it comes to a point where I'm just too nice.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. This week, we are going to be a little more low-key.
0: We're talking about something that's very important. Um, all of our topics are important, but this one has been showing up on your streaming devices, I'm sure, a lot. Um, it has been out there. It is a story that is has captured the nation, and there's a lot of of speculation around it, which we are not going to go into, um, but we are telling the story this week of the tragic death of Conrad Roy III. We're talking about the complexity that is behind depression, the complexity that falls behind suicide, and the stigma that still lies within suicide and people who are suicidal. And so this week we are sharing this story not to talk about anything in the legal realm, not to decide whether or not Michelle Carter was responsible.
1: We're here to discuss the layers, the gray, like Sarah said, the complexity of each story. Everybody's story has so much more than what you see as you start to peel back because humans are complicated. Mental illness makes it even more complicated. And these are teenagers too, which adds in a whole other level of complication. And, um, this particular story has, I don't know, it's really affected me in a way that not that other stories don't affect me. I feel very, Um, emotional about it, one, as a parent of a teenager, two, as someone who is a suicide survivor, three, as someone who has suicidal ideations herself, and four, as someone who just really can't stand when we only see things black and white in the world. It's so important that we see that people are not always one thing all the time and there is so much more to every story rather than just pointing blame. So we started
0: off this episode with a clip from a video diary of Conrad's just to give you a peek into his state of mind because I think what we need to make clear throughout this episode is that he was suffering And I say suffering with all of the impact of that word. It's something I feel like has lost meaning because we use it so much. But with all of the impact of that word that he was suffering from depression, he was not in a good state of mind for about two years. And so we are going to discuss
1: this relationship um, and tell you the story. If you want to um, see what's been put out there, Uh, again, it's been portions of the story. I think people do their best to tell the whole story just as Sarah and I will, but we will be leaving things out because it's impossible. One, we weren't there and two, you don't have all the time in the world. So Mm -hmm. on Hulu, you can watch, um, it's like a drama that's been created. It's a series called The Girl from Plainville. On HBO, it's a documentary. It's called I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. And then most recently, there has been a 2020 episode, which um, if you have streaming, you can watch that on Hulu.
0: Um, there's a Dateline episode from uh, uh, season 27, and that is called Reckless. And the 2020 episode is the most recent one as of when we're recording this
1: episode. And that one is called Words to Die By. There was some sensationalism in each of these in each of these pieces that uh, was hard for me to um I didn't like it. to right. <laughs> put it bluntly. Yeah. I didn't like it. I don't think that this is something to be sensationalized. This is a lot of hurt sick people and um I, in my, you know, I'm going to give you my opinions throughout this and Sarah's going to give you hers. And sometimes we have the same and sometimes we don't. I don't believe anyone in this story had ill will towards anyone. So it is very, um, and how many times can I say complicated in one episode? <laughs> complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you want to give us
0: the start of the story? Sure. Michelle Carter is from Plainville, Massachusetts. Conrad Roy is from New Bedford, Massachusetts. The two met one another on separate family vacations in 2012 in Florida and became friends and were messaging for two years between one another. Most of their relationship was through text message. Amy and I
1: spent hours going through hundreds hundreds, hundreds of pages of text messages back and forth and... It's hundreds in the tiniest font <laughs> possible. I know. Um, and then also on top of that, there were Facebook messages and Snapchat messages. And it just, their communication via social media, like on, you know, the device was constant. Mm-hmm. So Sarah's so like, yeah, I'm still on this day. And I was like, still? <laughs> Thousands yeah. of messages to each other throughout one day. Right. So it was a lot for us
0: to pour over. I think you can hear the fatigue in our voices. We've been yeah spending days researching through this and we were trying initially to get some answers, but I think what we've come up with is that more there there is more questions <laughs> and that there are no answers and that that's why this conversation is so important is because it is so gray. So... In Conrad's sophomore year, his parents divorced, and I believe that's when his mental health issues started to kind of go south. He had anxiety and depression. Um, He kept a video diary, and you can find some of those clips on YouTube, and um, and just kind of to get a, a feel for his state of mind. At age 17 is the first time that he did attempt suicide. He spent some time in a hospital under care, and he made it clear in his messages back and forth to Michelle that that was just not something he was interested in doing again. He didn't feel like it helped him as you know, we can kind of relate, you know, we we hear stories often of how that option is just not ideal for, for a lot everyone. of people.
1: And depending on upon the facility and who's working that day, <laughs> correct. Yeah. It's just the variables are endless. Right.
0: Right. So For two years, you can read these messages. They are public record. Um, For two years, Michelle and Conrad spoke daily, almost. And for two years, he expressed his wish to end his life. And for two years, Michelle very passionately tried to
1: talk him out of it. I was incredibly, I should say we, cause we were both like, whoa, incredibly impressed with the way that she tried to talk him out of it and the manner of which she would speak about how to get help and how to take it one moment at a time, moment by moment. Um, and they you know how much that they expressed their love for each other and she just did not want him to die and she was trying to get him to realize that he had a lot to live for and to have hope
0: we are going to give you a few of these different snippets <laughs> i mean and little small little, snapshots
1: tiny snapshots and i and i feel that that's you know always makes me nervous because i don't i want you to know there's more to all the stories so the the snippets you're getting in the media Is just in the last week that they're together Mm -hmm. or that he's alive, I should say. And there is two years prior to that of things that sound similar to what Sarah and I are going to share right now. Right.
0: On July 13th, 2014, Conrad Roy did end up dying by suicide. We're going to start with messages from June 1st, 2014.
1: So Michelle says, have you thought about getting professional help? Like, I think I'm going to go away to a place for my eating disorder to help me overcome it and stuff. The place also deals with psychiatric problems and disorders, too, so they can help you over some of this. I think it will really help you. And we can go together so we will be there for each other. Conrad says, where are you going? It's called McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. I honestly think it would be so good for you and we would get through our issues together. Think about it. You aren't going to get better on your own. You know it no matter how many times you tell yourself you are. You need professional help like me, people who know how to treat and fix it. So that's just a little bit
0: of a a look into her attempts at t- trying to help. We need to keep in mind that these are teenagers. She's a 17-year-old girl struggling with her own eating disorders, anxiety, and depression, It is very clear in her messages that she is looking for validation. She is looking for love. She is looking for friendship between the messages with her and her friends and messages between her and Conrad. It is also very clear that Conrad is looking for validation. He is looking for love. He is also, you know, struggling with anxiety and depression. So these are two very sick kids communicating with one another.
1: Yes. And a lot of their conversations back and forth are about their illnesses, um, her eating disorder is severe. Yes. And I would, you know, probably say that it, she has depression as well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we're not doctors, but I would agree with you I on have, that for yes, sure. I'm just we just have to say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, here's another short snapshot exchange of their exchange on June 19th, 2014. Conrad says, I meant like I've never found myself out yet, and it's scary. Most people do by now. So Michelle says, I haven't really found myself out either.
1: Don't worry. We will someday. We have time. Yeah, but it feels like it's too late for me. It's not too late. I promise. I'm going to help you find yourself. So this is less than a month Mm -hmm. before he does
0: um, die. So another snippet of conversations from June 21st of 2014. Conrad says, I just don't know anymore. My head is constantly filled with negative thoughts and IDK memories that's driving me insane. Trust me, remember? Hanging out might help. Just try. It's
1: controlling me, like my mind just wants me to give up, but I know I can't. What's the reason you're holding on? Like, what's the thing that's preventing you from giving up? My family. You and the people that care about me. It's time to start living your life for you, not just for them. Right now, you're just existing, you aren't living. I want to help you live again. That's some wise words, Michelle, but as much as you want to try,
0: I don't think I'm good enough for you, me, or anybody. I'm comparing myself to everybody, jealous of everything. I can't listen to music, watch TV, play a game, talk to my family without getting depressed and sad because I'm severely depressed. He then goes on for 81 messages, and it's about six pages of printed messages about how depressed he is and how little he thinks of himself. So June 25th, 2014, a few days later, Conrad starts, No one will ever know what I'm thinking and how I'm no good for anybody. I'll never be satisfied with anything. I'm just a negative piece of shit that's bringing everyone else down. Michelle
1: responds, Conrad, I'm trying to understand. I think about you all the time. You are my first thought in the morning and the last thought before I fall asleep. I'm scared that when I talk to you, it will be the last time and I'll never get to say goodbye. I'm trying so hard to understand and to help you. Please know that I'm giving all my effort and strength to help you because I don't want that time to come when I have to say goodbye to you. I do understand what you feel and what you're going through. It's just hard sometimes to express it because I've personally never been through it
0: feels like every fact I've ever known every ounce of detail in my life is wiped then
1: start over I don't know how to one day at a time do something that makes you happy look at an old photograph and try to remember that moment listen to music and that shows you're not alone that people have been through hard times too look at yourself in the mirror every day and tell yourself you're worth it that you will get better and overcome this just one day at a time Do something right for yourself. Will you try that? Yes, I'll try it.
0: On June 24th, his search history begins on specific ways to die by suicide. On June 29th, he begins to talk about
1: methods to Michelle of how he would carry out his plans. So as he's talking about suicide more and more in detail, and he is looking up the specific ways, This is not a direct quote, but I did write this down in my notes. So it was during that June 29th time. Here's what Michelle says to him. She says, part of me wants you to try to do something and fail. So then you can get help and go back to the mental hospital. So there was a portion of her that in that way wanted him to try because if he failed, then he would be forced to go to the hospital again. His response was no. No. And he said at that point, the only way I'll hate you is if you tell somebody about this right now. Right.
0: And he said that that was the one thing he did not want to happen is he did not want to go back to the hospital and that if he was going to attempt this again, he was going to make sure it 100% worked because he did not want to go back into the psychiatric
1: ward. And I I, I guess I want to put a little Mm. bit of a, I don't know disclaimer here just because someone says they're going to hate you um my husband told me he was going to hate me every single time when i put him in the hospital that does not mean not to do it what i'm saying is this is a 17 and an 18 year old who are desperately needing love and don't want to lose each other and i think that you know conrad dying and hating her were just the same amount of bad for her at that point in time so Again, people will say that to you. That doesn't mean don't call. It's right. just that in this situation, I can see that um, him hating her would have been like death.
0: I think we can probably all empathize with that. Right. I mean, I can remember as a teenager, my romantic relationships feeling like life and death.
1: Didn't they? It's so wild. Mm-hmm. And friendships. Sure. When people... I really truly was like angsty and I thought there's no way I'm going to make it through this. Mm-hmm. Especially if someone didn't like me anymore. Exactly. There are some messages
0: that it's sort of like this switch flips. And I'm I'm thinking that this is what the
1: psychiatrist, the doctor, was talking about. Yes. So in the testimony the, uh, for the defense there is a doctor, Dr. Bregan, and he talks about how, well, I, I appreciate what he'd said because he does say that for two years she tried to stop him. And then trying to understand what happened here at the end. So Bregan said it started between June 29th and July 2nd and he wasn't clear when it ended, this involuntary intoxication. So Bregan testified that she was meshed in delusion she was unable to form intent because she was so grandiose so those ideas those text messages of did you do something did you do something you know when are you doing it that it was part of her now I'm jumping in as my opinion I think she just broke honestly I think there was a point where she was like I can't save you And I think there might have been a hint of whatever happened with her medication that was like, yeah, you can't. So this is the next best thing you can do is to help him be happy. She kept saying that. I just want to help you be happy. Right. So there is a lot of condemning evidence against Michelle of her needing attention, wanting attention, you know, her finding some sort of notoriety in his death. And so this is one of those areas. Again, we're just trying to give you both sides of this story. And this was on July 3rd and Michelle says, well, how bad do you want it? Because if you want it bad, you should succeed. I want it. I wish you could be with me holding my hand through it. Well, then it should work. If it doesn't, then have a backup plan. When you try, it's all or nothing. Basically. And I wish I was holding your hand too. I'd do anything to kiss you one last time. I'd hold your hand and cry with you and tell you how much I love you. Ah. Are they home yet? No. Okay, tweet, I wanna be your last one. I don't wanna tweet. Fine, why though? What's it gonna do? I just thought it would be nice, it would make me happy. I've always wanted a nice shout out from you. You don't have to though, if you don't want to, it's okay. That was 10 days prior to his death.
0: And this is where the the prosecution brings in their case, basically, of Michelle's intent
1: behind her messages with Conrad. There is no denying, if you read the messages as they are stated, and you just read them, that she says over and over and over again, when are you going to do it? And why haven't you done it yet? And that shows that, you know, that's clearly her her having some sort of intent of him wanting to do it. Now, of course, I can read into it and think like she's wanting him to be happy and be, you know, able to finally be free because of past messages where that's all he wants, no matter how many things that she offers of help. But there is no denying that she does say it over and over and over and over again. And I think it's human nature. And I'm sure that you feel this way too, Sarah, like human nature, I put myself in her position. And I think like, what I say it that many times, like mm-hmm. over and over and over again, to me that I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I'm having a hard time really kind of grasping that. And there was a point where, you know, she said, I've already said goodbye to you in the way I wanted to say goodbye to you. Now you made me look like an idiot and I have to do it all over again. Mm -hmm. And that is where I do see fault. And I'm not saying like she's at fault for his death. I'm saying I do think that at that point she was wrong.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, In the week before his death, she texted him to ask him when he was going to do it over 40 times the morning of his death there was a chain of texts between Michelle and Conrad but there are two phone calls that last over 40 minutes between the two of them and of course we don't know what was said on those calls except for a small part of that that she does relay to one of her friends in a text message And this was kind of
1: the linchpin of the investigation. investigation. This is where the police found her to fully have some sort of case against her, I suppose. Um, And as we read deeper into the messages, she says it over and over again. And I see a, a girl who just is so confused about her actions even. I think she doesn't understand what she did and
0: why she did it. Yeah. And I think that even though it was quite clear and I don't see how anyone could possibly mistake that he was serious, I I don't know that
1: she really thought he was actually going to do it. And she says that in some messages afterwards. And I... You know, I I try to think of it both ways. Did she do that to cover her ass when they looked at the right messages, or truly because she said it again in in the midst of her friend's text messages, like way later in time? She said, you know, I I just can't get it out of my head that I could have done something to stop him. And you know, as she watched the pain of his family, she realized it wasn't going to. You know, when you're 17, you think like, yeah, in a couple of weeks, the mom will get over it. She said that. Mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. And some of the messages she
0: said in a few weeks, your parents will be fine and they'll be over yeah. it and everyone will move on because they'll know that you're happy and that you're out of pain and that's what you want.
1: And there is a point I really, really want to emphasize. I am not blaming parents at all here at all. Um, I'm not blaming anyone I just, you know, it's really important that I say that, but there is a point in the messages that we found digging through where he was looking up ways to um, commit suicide, to die by suicide. He was a hundred percent certain his mom saw the search, saw the screen and didn't do anything. And he expressed to Michelle, like why would she not ask me about this? Like, why is she just ignoring it? Like what, you know what? Why is she not even caring? Like, and you know, Michelle th- says, "Well, maybe she realizes how unhappy you are, and that she can't stop you." It's that adolescent mm-hmm. brain mm-hmm.
0: that doesn't understand, that doesn't grasp the
1: enormity of these things, the finality too. Mm-hmm. And there was a um, altercation with his father the day before of his death that was a physical altercation. And it's weird that it's not talked about in the text messages between him and Michelle, but that is what the court records stated and that did happen. And And I think about compiling all of these events together really does um, work on your brain, especially as a kid, especially as someone who has such severe depression and I can only imagine and I'm speculating that this those two things added to it now he did spend the day at the beach with his mom talking about his future and his sister taking them out for ice cream the day it happened I believe yeah so I think
0: another thing that we just want to make clear that When someone is suicidal, they will do these things. You know, you can have plans for your future and you can seem happy and you can joke around and you can have a great day and you can go do something fun with your friends and go home. And in a moment, everything changes. You know,
1: exactly. Um, My neighbor tells me all the time that the last conversation she had, which was like a couple months before Scott died, that he was adamant that he would never, ever, ever do it. He's like, you just don't, you guys don't have to worry about that. That's never happening. And I know that Conrad said that to his mom multiple times. And when you hear that, you believe it. Mm Mm-hmm. But they say that to you possibly because they don't want to hurt you or they don't want you to stop them. Um, And I think that for for Conrad, dying was better than the hospital because he was so worried about not making it work. And by that, I mean like completing the death. So the
0: following message from Michelle to her friend Sam, is on September 15th, 2014, so two months after the death of Conrad. And this is where we can get an inside track into the conversations that were over the phone and really know what happened there. And this is also where the prosecution finds their final piece of evidence against her in this case. In September of 2014, just a couple of months after Conrad passes, Michelle organizes an event for suicide awareness in honor of him. She shares the details of this with her friend Sam in
1: a text exchange. Sam says, that's so beautiful. Michelle replies, oh, thank you, Sam. I'm so happy you think that. Check it out on Facebook. I posted it and made it the event. I'm like famous now, LOL. It's really tough to read these. It was really hard for me to read. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, On September 15th, (laughs) 2014, Michelle
1: texts this to Sam. Sam, his death is my fault. Like, honestly, I could have stopped him. I was on the phone with him when he got out of the car because it was working and he got scared and I fucking told him to get back in. Sam, because I knew he would do it all over again the next day and I couldn't have him live the way he was living anymore. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't let him. And therapy didn't help him. And I wanted him to go to McLean with me when I went. But he would go in the other department for his issues. And he didn't want to go because he said nothing they would do or say would help him or change the way he feels. So I like started giving up because nothing I did was helping. But I should have tried harder. Like I should have did more. And it's all my fault because I could have stopped him. But I fucking didn't. All I had to say was was I love you, don't do this, one more time, and he'd still be here. And he told me that he would give me signs to know that he's watching over me, but I haven't seen any. And I just don't know, I'm sorry about this rant, I just need to get it off my chest, because it's all finally sinking in. And then in a separate message, she also says, I helped ease him into it and told him it was okay. I was talking to him on the phone when he did it, I could have easily stopped him or called the police, but I didn't. The finality of it didn't hit her until then.
0: This is why it's so important for us to talk to our kids. To the point of annoyance. To the point of annoyance. They're going to be annoyed. That's (laughs) what we're here to do. We're supposed to annoy them. But it's just, I mean, again, this is not me saying that in terms of me placing any blame on the parents at all. I'm not... I'm saying it as more of like a warning, a um, a learning opportunity for parents, for us as parents, for me as a parent, for you, for all of us, you know, to just annoy the shit out of our kids and know what's going on in their lives. And it's okay for them to hate us. They won't hate us forever. It's okay to be nosy. It's okay to know who they're talking to and what they're talking about. But also, with that being said, to know that it's so complex and it is so gray. And that's why we're talking about this. Mental illness is so
1: hard. It's so overwhelming. Um, And Sarah and I can tell you from our own experiences, I don't even have to talk about Scott I can talk about myself and she can talk about herself when you are in this state of mind there is nothing that can change your mind um, because I am older and grown and I can I uh, know how to pull myself back into reality how to get grounded how to you know bring myself back now I mean, that's only because of how many years of therapy too, you know? So, but when you're there, your brain is not, for those of you out there who don't struggle with this, that's, that's just a beautiful thing. Um, but to give you a little bit of insight, something takes over you. Depression lies.
0: That's the thing that I have to tell myself. And it's something that I have learned in therapy. And it's one of the greatest gifts that my therapist ever gave me was to tell me, your depression is not inside of you. You need to take it outside of you and see it as this separate entity and that it lies to you and it's going to lie to you. And so that knowledge has been the thing that has helped me when I get into that space and that frame of mind is to remind myself of those things and to tell myself to hold on that it's going to pass because I know that it's passed before. Before. And so I know that if I can hold on long enough, it will pass again. And those are the things that for me personally have gotten me through. So I don't have but the qualified pen. knowledge. Right. But I'm just giving you that is my tool that I use whenever I experience any suicidal ideation.
1: Suicide is not selfish. It is um pain that is unbearable and you can't f- you feel like it's never going to ease up. And um there is no <laughs> there is no cure, no answer to it. All we can do is continually talk about it to the point that it is a regular conversation. To say the word suicide is not something that, you know, people cringe or run away at. That it's something that we can talk about openly and honestly. And that's really the point of everything that we do on here. Um, I'm going to be real honest. This episode's getting difficult, I think, for both of us to discuss. I want to be very responsible with this and to know that just because people can't see the other side does not mean that you cannot see the other side. And there is always hope and there is always help and there's always people to talk to and that you are important and you are loved and you are here for a reason.
0: I also wanted to add that another reason of why suicide is not selfish is because a lot of times when you're in that position, you genuinely believe that the people in your life would be better off without you in it.
1: This is getting very hard to talk about. I did not expect to get emotional because I don't get emotional. Um. But. It is, it is. It's really. It's a really difficult thing. This story in particular, I, I just didn't like the way it was sensationalized. It didn't give honor to. Either one of them, I don't think, and I just feel sad for both of them. We wanted to conclude the episode by talking about
0: the difference between suicide versus suicidal, and how the stigma of suicidal is actually worse than suicide. Because when someone dies by suicide, it's considered a tragedy. Everyone feels bad. Everyone is present. Everyone wishes they saw the signs. And everyone wishes they hadn't done it. But when someone is suicidal, people can consider it attention-seeking, people get irritated, people avoid them, people dismiss them, and no one believes that they'll ever actually do it. And so what we want to make sure is that if someone is suicidal and is expressing suicidal thoughts to you, please take them seriously
1: it could save their life. So we've all had different experiences with the suicide hotline, with hospitals, with therapists, with psychiatrists, and with those that we love and trust. And I, what I want to say is that if you've had a bad one, try again, try something else. And just because It says it's there to help you and it doesn't help you doesn't mean that you're more broken than someone else or too broken to be fixed. Sometimes it's just not you. Sometimes it just happens to be the particular system that you've landed in. So keep trying, keep going and know that the pain that you're feeling is so fucking real and it is something that even though you can't describe it and even though others don't understand it that, you know, at least the two of us know you can get to the other side. I just want to encourage people to know that within the least cheesy possible way (laughs) to push through because you just don't know what tomorrow is. This is also going to
0: sound cheesy (laughs) but what also is helpful is when you're feeling good is to write down the things that you know are going to help you when you're not feeling good. We've said it before, but I just feel it bears repeating in this episode specifically because you need that reminder because all logical thinking goes out the window. Yes. And so having that reminder for yourself of what is going to help you and then giving those reminders to someone you trust Someone in your life that can help you and that will take you seriously and will be there for you in these times without patronizing you or making you feel stupid about it. That is the person you need to reach out to. If it's possible, I would say to please find someone who is in a healthier state of mind. It is hard when, you know, witnessing this story here and retelling and Mm -hmm. recounting this story here, talking about two very sick people. Um, So, you know, that was not helpful for either one of them. But broken people tend to find broken people. (laughs) So as we're sitting across from one another,
1: (laughs) we hope that we have been able through this podcast, not just this episode, but in general, to give you some hope, something to hold on to. Again, we take, say, just until the next moment. You don't even have to give yourself until the next day, just the next moment. Keep holding on, knowing that you are worth it and that you are a warrior. We love you.
0: This episode was brought to you by Sarah Simone and Amy Baumgartner. Theme song and other music provided by Epidemic Sound. Editing and production by Sarah Simone. To help us keep making episodes just like this, join our fan club at patreon.com slash unqualified therapists, Inc. Follow us on Instagram at unqualified therapists, where you will find our link tree to all things here at the UT. If you have a story to tell or a topic you'd like us to discuss, email us at Unqualified therapists at gmail.com. Until next week, warrior, hold on. We're going to make it.